Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. How bad was the British Empire? That's the question Nigel Bigger, Emeritus Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford, has attempted to answer in his book, Colonialism and Moral Reckoning. But in doing so, he has confronted those who don't just want to tell a one-sided story of an imperial project motivated solely by racism and exploitation, but who also want to silence alternative narratives, and who almost succeeded in preventing his book being published. I was delighted to have the chance to talk to him, not just about his own personal battle with the culture warriors, but about the deeper philosophical issues at play. How do you make a moral assessment of a vast sweep of history with multiple actors, each with their own motivations, and one which includes both enthusiastic participation in the slave trade and being instrumental in its abolition? And what happens when we allow shame about the past to dictate how we do things today? Professor Nigel Bigger, thank you so much for joining me on the CapEx podcast. Um, We're here to talk about your book, um, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. But I wanted to start by talking about the kind of inception of this book in the first place, because I think it tells its own story about debates about colonialism and, and the state of what we might call the culture wars at the moment. So could you start by telling us a bit about what inspired you to write the book in the first place and some of the difficulties you've had in getting it to this stage of publication? Yes, indeed, Alice. Um, first of all, what inspired it? Um, I'm, I'm Anglo-Scottish in spite of my rather English accent. And uh, during the 2014 referendum on Scottish independence, uh, I was um, very worried at the prospect of the United Kingdom breaking up because c- I'm, I'm a unionist. I believe in the UK as a, an extraordinarily successful multinational uh, state. Um, and in the course of... Um, thinking about the issues raised by Scottish nationalists. I I read a number of um, accounts by nationalists of why they thought independence was justified, and some of them um, um, ran in terms of a a view of Britain as um, identified with empire and empire as as evil, and and therefore uh, Scotland's separation from the UK, its dissolution of the Union, would be an act of national self-purification. And uh, when I read those things, I, 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 having spent 15, 20 years reading about British imperial history, um, I knew that the equation of empire with evil is just not plausible. And so th- there was a political motive for my writing this book, and, and that's where it began. But then, um, um, more generally, 
I was aware that um, the only empires that anyone seems to care about right now are, are, are white European ones, or, if you like, um, the, uh, the American one too. No one cares about non-European empires, be they Chinese or Zulu or Arab or Comanche. And that raises the question as to why this focus on European empires. And it seemed to me that this, uh, the, the attack on uh, British colonial, the British colonial record is the same kind of thing as you find in the United States with the 1619 Project, uh, which holds that the, the very uh, foundations of the United States were racist. In other words, it's an attack on the very foundations of the record of the US and of Britain and more generally of the West. Uh, I, I don't pretend that to, to, to suppose that uh, uh, this attack on the record of the West is being funded by Putin or President Xi of China. <laughs> it, it may be, uh, uh, but inadvertently, the, the, these radical critics of the West uh, are aiding uh, the, um, the cause of authoritarian, uh, aggressive uh, states such as, as communist China and Putin's Russia. So th those are the kind of political motives. Uh, uh, there's another motive, simple one, the truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the truth about our past is that, it, that, that our, our, our colonial forebears were not all about uh, racism and oppression and exploitation. Uh, so that was the first question you asked. And then, then the, the story of um, the, the um, non-publication and publication <laughs> of the book. So um, uh, I first got into trouble about my views on colonialism in December 2017 when uh, I just launched a research project called Ethics and Empire and then I published an article in the London Times in which I made what I thought was the completely anodyne uh, um, point that we British can find cause for both shame and pride. Note, pride and shame in our imperial past. Um, but th that got me into trouble, uh, and I can go into detail, but it, it led to three online denunciations in the space of a week. Um, and my, my name was in the, in the press for about three weeks until after Christmas uh, 2017. Early 2018, I got an approach from uh, a commissioning editor at Bloomsbury Publishing saying, would you write a book on, if any wanted me to write a, an intelligent person's guide to colonialism. Mm -hmm. That was in about March, April 18. Eventually I said yes, signed a contract, produced the manuscript at the end of 2020 uh, with about nine hours to spare before the deadline fell. Uh, early 21, my editor writes back, says he's speechless with admiration for the comprehensiveness and rigour of the book says uh, it's um, an important book, says it twice, predicts sales of up to 20,000 copies. The book is then put through the copy editing process and a cover is designed, and then in March, middle of March 21, um, I receive uh, an email from the top of Bloomsbury saying that they will, they're going to uh, postpone publication indefinitely because, quote, public feeling is unfavourable. Um... Uh, I, I was told informally that uh, Bloomsbury wanted me to walk away from the contract. Um, since I had no alternative, I wasn't willing to walk away from it. And so I, I engaged them in uh, some uh, innocent correspondence in which I said, uh, um, you're worried about public feeling? Well, there's more than one public feeling. Which one are you worried about? Mm. And then I, I asked, uh, under what conditions will publication become favourable again? 
uh, in the hope that they might be honest about their reasons, but they weren't. They evaded the questions. And uh, in uh, early April, um, I got an email uh, saying clearly that you're uh, talking to me, clearly, Professor Bigger, you're keen to get your book published, and so uh, we're going to return the contract to you. And uh, after I spent uh, several hundred pounds on a lawyer to try and see if I could hold Bloomsbury to the contract, um, uh, I was told I couldn't. Um, and then I told Bloomsbury what I thought of them. And most of all, Alyssa, of course, personally, I was upset at the prospect of what I thought to be an important um, book wouldn't get published. But I was most depressed at the thought that Britain had come to a place where publishers wouldn't dare publish stuff, no matter how well written or how important, just because uh, it was going against the, uh, a, a current fashion. And that really depressed me. But the good news was, um, a few months later, uh, Harper Collins gave me a contract, and the book came out, as you know, a month ago. And Bloomsbury's loss was Harper Collins's gain. I think we want to mention that it's been in the Sunday Times bestseller list, um, uh, and certainly uh, recommend the book to CapEx readers. But I suppose what this whole row seems to shine a light on is really the state of free speech at the yes. moment. You're not the only author who's been edited or silenced or shut down. We've had this huge row recently about edits to Roald Dahl. I just wonder how it, how you think this reflects on our culture at large and the state we've come to. You talk about this kind of starting from the Scottish referendum, mm. but I feel like it's really taken hold, the kind of fear of these ideas since the Black Lives Matter movement in yep. America, since the death of George Floyd. It feels like a lot of this seems to be imported from America and it seems to be a sense of, of British people feeling ashamed of their own culture. Anyway, I'm rambling on. I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> no, no, you're right. Uh, uh, this has been imported. Um, um, so it's as if what applies in America applies straightforward in the UK. And, of course, the, the assumptions that Black Lives Matter make about race in America are questionable, and there are black Americans who will question it. But put that aside. Um, y yes, it, it, it's, it's, been, it's, it's been assumed that... Um, um, what applies in America applies here. So there was that, I've seen a, a, a photograph of a, uh, an English woman protesting at a Black Lives Matter rally mm. uh, with a placard saying, disarm the police. Well, in the UK, our police are not normally armed. Mm. Um, so it is a bit of an, a kind of thoughtless import. Um, and I guess it's been, it's been promoted by activist groups who have a political interest in promoting it. Uh, as to why um, so many of our institutions and the leadership of our institutions has not, as it were, uh, applied any kind of critical break, like, <laughs> this is not America, um, like, are we in fact systemically racist? Um, and and there, there are good reasons to suppose we're not, even though there may well be institutions that, that um, 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 do uh, contain uh, structural racism. Um, but there's a strange uh, lack of confidence and nerve on the part of our, of our leaders, particularly of cultural institutions, which I don't entirely understand. Partly it's ignorance. Um, the, the truth is that most Britons now know almost nothing about our colonial history. I happen to have spent 20 years reading about it, so I do. And I hope that if my book does nothing else, even if readers don't agree with the line of argument, it will open their eyes to... Um, the, the whole truth about our colonial history, the, the very good bit, bits as well as the very bad bits. Um, so it's partly, partly ignorance, I think, that allows um, radical and, and frankly untrue ideas to prevail. 
That plus on the part of uh, nice, decent, middle-class, university-educated, uh, right-thinking, progressive people, a sheer terror <laughs> of being accused of being racist. Mm. Uh, to which my response is, yeah, but leaders get paid to take risks and to lead, not just to cave in. Uh, so there is a question in my mind as, as to um, the kind of people who end up being put in charge of our institutions. Um, and do you get the sense, or you work in a university as well, that these institutions are out of step with the public? It does feel like with the backlash to things like um, the edits to Roald Dahl, with the fact that books like yours are popular with the public, yes. that that perhaps our institutions and not necessarily our, our polit- politicians are the ones who are out of touch. No, I think I think that's right. Uh, I, I mean, the, 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 I, I'm in, enormously pleased at the success of my book in terms of, of sales, um, far exceeded anything I expected, um, which, which does confirm to me that there is out there in the great British public um, uh, a hunger for balanced, careful, reasonable... Uh, accounts of controversial issues like like uh, our colonial history, um, but you wouldn't believe that if you were confined to, to a university setting. But but even in a university setting, my view is that the the, the ethos that the culture is dominated by um, a minority that is aggressive, very zealous, absolutely convinced um, of its own views, behaves as if no one sensible or non-racist could po- could possibly disagree. So you have a very aggressive, um, shall we call them, woke minority. Uh, and then you've got um, a majority of um, professors and students who don't know enough about colonialism to, to contradict these folk, who don't want to fight, who don't like conflict, um, don't want to be considered racist. And so they just acquiesce. So the, the bad news is that there's a lot of, um, a, a lot of, what you would say, cowardice or... A failure to to say what you believe to be true, or even to ask questions, critical questions, because of fear. That's the bad news. The good news is, um, if you can liberate those voices, um, you, you get results you don't expect. So, a couple of years ago, uh, my friend and colleague Arif Ahmed in Cambridge responded to uh, a, a, an attempt by the University of Cambridge to require all members to respect views they disagreed with. And Arif, being a, an awkward philosopher, thought to himself, well, um, you can ask me to tolerate views I regard as nonsense. He, he's an atheist, so, so he didn't have a, high deal of, a great deal of respect for religious views. You, you can ask me to tolerate them, but don't ask me to respect what I think is nonsense. Um, um, and uh, uh, in order to get, in order to push back against the university's proposal, he had to get uh, thirty or so, twenty-five, thirty people to sign um, a, a motion to be debated in the um, general assembly of Cambridge University. It took him about four or five weeks to get twenty-five people with the courage to put their names to this thing. Anyway, he got them. There was a, a, a motion put. There was a debate. And the result was uh, that there were about 1,200 people turned up out of about 2,000 staff, academic staff, um, which was a, a large number. And the result was um, four to one against the university. But, mm. <laughs> but this was because uh, the vote was by secret ballot. Mm. So, so no one had to own up to what they were voting. 
But the good news is out there that there is uh, a lot of doubt, scepticism, um, quiet opposition that needs to be mobilised. If we can mobilise it, the the what appears to be the dominance of the, these radical views will will disappear. Let's talk about the book itself, which I suppose is an example of people sort of like you standing up for the truth, trying to, to do this uh, this mobilisation, trying to show that there are other points of view out there. But I suppose one tension I, I found reading this book is that you make clear it's not, a, it's not a history of the British Empire, it's a moral assessment of it. Um, but at the same time, the whole book is about the immense complexity, the different motivations, all the shades of grey that constitute a historical project of this scale. So I just wonder why, in, in trying to conduct a moral reckoning, if you've set yourself an impossible task. <laughs> well, it's certainly, certainly a, a complicated one. <laughs> And I, I felt uh, um, partly out of a, a duty to be faithful to the complicated truth, partly um, because because any attempt to, to to say the empire was simply good is not plausible, uh, and partly to to be honest enough to, to stare in the face uh, some of the the awful things that took place under the imperial auspices, not least um, 150, 200 years worth of slavery in the. 17th and 18th centuries, um, I, I wanted to present the complexity. But then, uh, as an ethicist, I, I wanted to reach a judgment of some kind. So uh, the, the, the way I went about it was basically this. Um, in the conclusion to the book, I, I say, having surveyed uh, the history of the British Empire, you end up with a list of bad things and a list of good things. Uh, well, I, I'm not a utilitarian, so so I don't believe you can quantify mm. these things in a kind of common currency and, and conclude well there was more good than bad. So so uh, how can you say that you you can't say that um, um, that so many lives saved through the introduction of modern medicine was worth uh, so many years of racist oppression? I mean, the, the chalk and cheese. You can't compare them. So so you you can't make your judgment that way. Um, but but what the radical critics of empire do is to say, well, um, the Nazi empire did good things too. It, it, uh, Hitler built autobahns. He <laughs> they developed the Volkswagen. Um, but of course that 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 doesn't compensate for the massively murderous racist heart of of the Nazi empire. And I think that's right. But then they go on to say, well, the British empire was the same as Nazism. It was essentially racist. Uh, um, uh, committed genocide all over the place, um, and, and Cecil Rhodes or Winston Churchill were were equivalent to Hitler. Um, so what I do is okay. I say, well, we we, we can't uh, decide it by uh, quantifying goods and evils. What we could do is is to say that the British Empire was essentially like Nazism. Was it? So I examine that and I say. No, it was not essentially racist, although it involved racism. Uh, nowhere did it uh, uh, commit uh, intentional systemic genocide, ever. And the notion of cultural genocide actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And even in terms of economic exploitation, if you're a Marxist, you think it was all... If you're a neo-Marxist, uh, you think it was all about economic exploitation, but actually um, um, the empirical data doesn't support that. So I was able to conclude... No, the British Empire was not in any serious respect like Nazism. And then I add to that, uh, in addition, uh, from the early 19th century onwards, 
starting with the campaign to abolish slavery, uh, there was a consistent concern at the imperial centre and in, in, in colonial governments uh, to try and um, save native peoples in Australia, New Zealand, North America and Africa, uh, to save them from the impact of um, modernity. Um, and colonial officials were, were often deeply distressed at um, the impact of inadvertent spread of disease by Europeans. So, so you, you have a, a, um, a consistent, from the early 19th century onwards, humanitarian impulse. You also have a, a growing liberal political impulse insofar as um, having, having learnt our lesson from the American War of Independence um, uh, from 1860s onwards, from the 1860s onwards, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa become progressively more autonomous and by 1930 they're virtually independent states. From after the First World War, India was on the same track to independence within the empire and there's a statement in the early uh, 1920s to the, from the colonial office saying that henceforth colonial policy in, in Africa would be based on the interest of Africans. And then finally I say... How did the empire spend itself? Uh, how did it exhaust itself in 1939-45 fighting um, the murderously, massively murderous racist regime in, in Berlin? Uh, so the empire contained good, good and bad. It was not essentially like the Nazis, and it contained significant and, and sustained liberal and humanitarian um, uh, streams. I just wonder if if saying that uh, the British Empire is like the Nazis, slightly reductive characterization of, of anti-colonialist arguments, are they not trying to just say, you know, for centuries, history's written by the winners, the British Empire were the victors, and they've portrayed their own actions as, as, as good and paternalistic and wonderful, and we're just saying, actually, you know, some of it was bad and we're shining a light on... Yep. Yep. Um, is, that, is that fair? <laughs> Uh, um, it could be fair um, if I was saying, as one reviewer said, that that I was accusing a vast array of historians of um, the, these uh, radical, radical and extreme this this kind of uh, extreme um, denigration of of the British Empire. Um, the truth is, I'm not mainly concerned with uh, professional historians. I'm mainly concerned with uh, those um, historians who, who get public traction and are uh, affecting the general view of the public. Uh, so there may be many historians who are, who are more balanced, and, and I've no quarrel with them at all, but I instance in my book a number of cases of um, uh, historians of empire who seem to me to be uh, um, heavily prejudiced, where their judgments run way out, of, out ahead of the evidence. And these people... They're not marginal. Uh, some of them are, are, are at Harvard and Oxford and uh, elsewhere, and they, they get uh, uh, prizes from professional associations. So they're not marginal. But um, if, if, if it were true that uh, a lot of historians were simply correcting uh, um, a rose-tinted rose account of the imperial past, um, I'd have no objection, except um, the correction's been going on for about 40 years now. Mm. It's not as if... It's not as if, as if anyone has glorified the empire since the 1950s. Um, so I, I consider myself to be to be um, trying to um, make a significant correction to 
an extreme account of, of empire, which may only be um, promoted by uh, a minority of historians, uh, but appears to be permitted by a much larger majority of historians who say nothing mm. to correct them. Yeah, it's a good point. I just wonder slightly if if framing it as this kind of balance sheet, you know, so you've got on the on the debit side, you've got you know, slavery, the epidemics, the displacement, um, famine and racism. And then, you know, on the, on the credit side, we have abolition, free markets, infrastructure and modern medicine. I just wonder if there's a risk that you're slightly letting the anti-colonialists frame the terms of the debate having it as a kind of almost a tit for tat. Yes, yes. Well, so the, my critics often accuse me of um, engaging in um, a discredited balance sheet approach, uh, to which I can only say um, right from the beginning I've rejected their approach because I, I, I've just said, I've always said, you, you can't compare apples and oranges. You can mm. end up with lists of goods and, goods and evils and there's no way of quant- quantifying mm. them. Um, so I, I don't do that. Um, but what I do say is, well, c- can we identify, c- can we say that there was something at the heart of the imperial enterprise that we can we can identify as being uh, malicious? As as we do with, with uh, the uh, short-lived Nazi empire. And my conclusion is, no, can't say that. And then I say, well, uh, uh, in addition to not, uh, in addition to the, the, the lack of a Nazi heart, we can also point to sustained, and I would even say um, growing uh, uh, humanitarian and, and liberal forces within imperial thinking. But but the empire to the end remained a morally mixed bag. Mm. The, to the end, there was um, uh, disgusting racism on the part of of some people. Um, but then but then my view is that you won't find a a, a state anywhere in the world. Of long standing, in fact, you won't find a human institution of long standing that doesn't have a mixed record and doesn't have um, elements of good and bad right now. Uh, that's that's normal. Um, but I, I guess you you can you can tell whether the institution is, as it were, at its heart uh, corrupt. And I don't think the empire was. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And I think it's fair to say that some people who criticise the empire, and you, you should talk about in this in your book, are very keen to talk about uh, the evil of slavery, but they give the partial picture because they don't talk about abolition, which is a product a project undertaken by the empire at considerable economic yeah. and political expense. Yeah. And I think you make that, that point really well. Um, I suppose another thing that you concentrate quite a lot on in your book is the motivations. And I think um, something that would be particularly interesting to our readers is, is your chapter on free trade, yeah. where you talk about how um, uh, sort of mining in Rhodesia, these kind of things, where where there were poor wages or bad working conditions, these were more due to market factors. I wonder if, this is kind of quite a philosophical question, but if morality is engaged when it comes to free market competition or, or if something is just decided by competition alone, is that a moral question? Um, yes, I mean, I think um, there's always, I think, a moral duty for um, employers to treat their employees fairly, but um, there are lots of arguments to, to be had about what's fair in the circumstances. Um, so, for example, I noticed, I noted that uh, um, white miners in southern Africa, I, I forget the details, that they were paid uh, considerably more than the black miners. Now, this, this could have been because of sheer racial prejudice, um, but there are other explanations too. Um, one being that in, in order to attract white miners out from, from Britain and elsewhere uh, to a part of the world where, on the whole, British emigrants weren't keen to go. British emigrants much preferred to go to Canada and, and the US um, because Africa, the, the environment was, was not as comfortable and sometimes quite lethal. But in order to attract people out there to mine, they had to offer wages that, that would attract a, a Britain. Um, so that, as it were, the, the, the market in terms of wages demanded um, a higher um, uh, incentive for Britons than for Africans. Um, um, the, other th the other reason to, to doubt that uh, the relatively low pay of Africans was motivated by racism was that the, the mines were desperate for labour, desperate for labour, and um, they, they were desperate to recruit Africans. So uh, com uh, economically, it wouldn't make sense uh, to, to offer Africans wages that, that they found unacceptable. Um, so uh, no, I, I do think there are, there are more questions there. And, and no doubt, no doubt, um, British enterprise in the empire was sometimes uh, unjustifiably exploitative. But again, when is exploitation exploitation? Mm. Um, that, that's, 
I'm not a Marxist, so I don't think that all profit-making is by its nature exploitation. Um, but would you go for, so far as to say that free trade is in itself a moral good? I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's either good or bad, but there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, uh, it, it does mean, the thing about free trade is that it does mean that um, sometimes some producers will um, push other producers out of the market. So, uh, um, for example, uh, manufactured textiles from Manchester or elsewhere in England imported to India did put um, artisan producers of, of textiles out of, out of work. Um, that was bad, but that, that's the nature of the market. Um, it, it didn't actually, it didn't actually uh, abolish the, uh, the artisanal industry um, because it was still going, that, that was still going way in, into the 1930s and 40s. Um, but, but, but by the same token, uh, um, if the importation of British textile, manufactured textiles to India put some Indians out of, out of work, um, it also allowed other Indians, entrepreneurs, to come to England to uh, observe manufacturing processes, to import those processes and the expertise and the plant back into India, set up um, uh, steel plants uh, like the Tata uh, steel plants and textile, textile mills, and then employ Indians. Um, uh, so uh, there's no doubt the free market can, can, um, can cause the, the loss of employment. It can also create employment. As to who takes care of those who lose their jobs, I mean, nowadays we have, um, in, in the West, we have extremely um, well-developed welfare states that can help to ease unemployment. In the 19th century, late 19th century, run the turn of the 20th century, most states didn't have that. And, and to this day, many Asian states don't have it. I think another another sort of slight tension that I found in your in your book, I mean, when you talk about the the impact of economic intervention in the colonies, you say that the effects are difficult to judge because we can't know the counterfactual, right? We can't know what happened if these cultures had never encountered the West. But that also both works both ways, doesn't it? We we also can't know. We can't necessarily say conclusively that this was a, a benefit, since we don't know what would have happened in the alternative situation. So I guess, how do you make that moral assessment in the absence of the counterfactual is my question. I suppose, uh, I'm not sure is the answer, not <laughs> sure. Um, uh, but I guess I would say that with regard to the impact of modernity upon uh, cultures in Australia, Africa and North America that were not so technologically developed, um, the impact was going to be hard. Mm. It was going to be disrupted because uh, um, when when when, cult when cultures collide and there's a big difference, it's disruptive. Um, and so one argument is um, much better to have a colonial government that could moderate the impact um, than nothing at all. Otherwise, you have anarchy and you have the domination of, of the strongest. And that was happening in parts of Africa before colonial government established itself. Now, um, and then, the, the, then the, the argument is, for example, in New Zealand, if it hadn't been the British, it would have been the French or the mm. Americans. Um, um, so it's, it's not clear. I guess what, what I could say is just not clear. There was a better, there was a, a likely uh, plausible alternative that would have been significantly better. Mm. Yeah, and I think what people often overlook is the benefits of bringing peace and stability 
which allowed within that more self-determination. Yes. Um, I suppose the, the, the reason why all this stuff is important is because it's, it's not, this is not just sort of nice arguments about the past. This is impacting decisions that are made today. Um, and one that I'm particularly keen to talk about is um, the restitution of objects from museums. Yes. Um, I, I, you started thinking about this a lot in the context of the Roads Must Fall campaign. Yeah. Um, I just, I just, I'm just really interested to hear your thoughts about this. I suspect it's not a practice that you're a fan <laughs> of. <laughs> it depends on the case. I mean, given my general view of European colonialism, namely it wasn't simply racist and evil and oppressive and sometimes could be um, emancipatory. Um, whatever decisions are made about um, the return of objects of art to their place of origin should not be made out of a general colonial sense of guilt mm. because, because such, such guilt is not warranted. Um, that, that, that's my first, the first um, principle, I guess. The same thing to say is that there may be cases where um, something was clearly stolen um, and it's clear who it's stolen from and it, it, it is clear who stole it and it's clear to whom it should be returned. So something closely analogous to the theft of Jewish property by the Nazi state, if there's something of that kind, mm. then there may well be justification for the return of um, objects. But uh, in the case of, of two celebrated sets of objects, Benin bronzes, Elgin marbles, um, I mean, I've, I've uh, studied the... the um, the history of the removal of the objects, in neither case do I think that they were taken illegitimately. Um, and in neither case, in fact, do I, do I think the case for returning them is, is, is a strong one. I mean, there, may, there, there may be political reasons to do it, um, but, but not out of a sense of general colonial guilt, certainly in those cases. Uh, in the case of the, of the bronzes, um, there was a British expedition that overthrew the uh, the king of, of Benin, it was, it was provoked by the slaughter of an unarmed embassy. Uh, secondarily, there, there, were, there were commercial motives, but that wasn't why the invasion took place. And the, one of the effects of the invasion was, was shortly afterwards the British abolished slavery in, in Benin. And, and the, the Benin bronzes, by the way, were um, manufactured out of uh, brass manilas, uh, which were a form of currency used, among other things, to trade in slaves. And that's why there are... Um, there's a body of uh, descendants of um, slaves um, taken from West Africa to the Americas. There's a body in New York uh, of the descendants of those slaves uh, lobbying for the retention of, of uh, the Benin Bronzes in museums in, in New York and London and elsewhere because they argue the descendants of the slaves should have access to see these things, mm. uh, not just the descendants of those who owned slaves and traded in them back in Benin. So it's, it's, it's morally complicated. It's certainly much more complicated than, than the argument put forward by people like Dan Hicks who say these things were looted and should simply be returned, decolonised. That's far too simple, I think. What do you make about arguments about museum practice itself? Now, there are those people who say that by removing uh, an object from its original context, yeah. you're exoticizing it, you're telling a very one-sided story. The Welcome Collection basically said that it was impossible in the context of a museum set up by a Victorian philanthropist to tell a nuanced story about its own collection. What do you make of that? Because it's certainly true that 
that a museum like the Pitt Rivers does exoticize its collection. Um, but does that mean we need to hand it back? Um, I guess, Alice, I'd want to spend a bit of time talking about what you mean by exoticize. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. Um, so, I mean, in terms of... of I mean, these objects were collected because they were fascinating, because they were different, because they were strange. Mm. Um, and there was, was the, the collectors were curious about them. Um, uh, and if you like, found them to be, I mean, what, what is it to be exotic? It means it's, it's strange and fascinating. Mm. What's wrong with that? Um, now, it may well be that um, the collectors and the museums didn't fully understand what they meant in the original context, but it's, it's the job of museums to communicate mm. that kind of thing uh, now, so by all means, let's do that. Um, but also the, the argument for um, universal museums, such as the British Museum and museums elsewhere in, in, in Europe, is that they do have the advantage of being able to set artworks from Benin or from, from Athens uh, alongside... Um, uh, artworks from different parts of the world or different periods. Uh, so um, apparently the, the Benin bronzes uh, were very influential in shaping uh, European, uh, modern European art. Um, uh, and so unlike a, a museum in Benin, you can put a Benin bronze alongside a Picasso mm. in, in Europe. So, so it's, it's not true that works of art the, the only authentic meaning is, is back where they originated because they, works of art acquire all sorts of different meanings according, according to their context. So but by all means, uh, let, let Athens um, display some of the uh, Elgin marbles in Athens, and if they want to show visitors what the mar marbles look like um, all together and in the original position, well, they can project that using, using modern projection technology. Uh, but let's keep some of them in, in London so that you can... Um, put them alongside um, uh, artwork from other times and, and, and places and, and learn new things about those artworks and the ones that, that are juxtaposed. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think by doing that, then you, then you give those objects uh, 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 their own agency and an equal billing. Yeah. And, and I, personally, I feel that this motivate, this kind of urge to, to send everything back just feels like a reflection of a culture that's ashamed of itself. Well, it is. It's, 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 it, the, the assumption is we are guilty and we mm. stole these things. And, and part, uh, again, even if readers don't entirely buy the argument in my book, uh, I hope there's enough in the book to, to show readers that, um, again, very simply, uh, if we British, if we Europeans, if we Americans can find cause for shame in the way in which our ancestors dealt with uh, indigenous or native peoples, uh, we can also find uh, causes for... Uh, we can find things in our history we can admire and, and be proud of. Um, so uh, uh, there may be good reasons to, to return particular objects. Uh, maybe some were stolen. Uh, maybe we have enough of them in, in Europe and we can afford to send some back to Benin, but, but not because of a general um, um, unfiltered uncritical sense of, of guilt over our colonial past, because that is not warranted. And, and I think that there's a real danger if you let a sense of guilt about our colonial past 
influence, say, foreign policy decisions today. Yes. So I think one of the most compelling, uh, the most persuasive parts of your book is when you sort of deconstruct some of the moral arguments of the anti-colonialists. So you say that if we believe we have a moral duty to stop oppressing foreign people, then surely we may have a moral duty to stop others doing so. And this is clearly powerfully resonant in the context of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I acknowledge that um, intervening, particularly militarily, in the affairs of another another country uh, is a risky thing to do, and our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan has surely underscored that. Um, um, it doesn't mean it's always wrong to do, and I do remember um, 10 years ago sitting next to... Uh, well, I, I was surrounded by um, a group of, uh, of Shakespearean actors from Kabul. These were Afghan uh, uh, men... I think they were entirely men, um, who uh, liked to play Shakespeare. And uh, one of them said to me that he was terrified. He was terrified of the prospect of the Taliban returning. Um, so whatever the failures of Western policy in, in, in Afghanistan, whatever the mistakes, uh, let's not pretend that there weren't uh, many Afghans, probably Afghans rather more like you and I, you know, middle-class British people, uh, than than um, peasants in the countryside uh, who wanted the West to support the government against the Taliban. Um, but, but I grant you, uh, we, we've learnt that uh, making a difference in, in very different parts of the world is a difficult thing to do. One of the lessons I would draw from that is that if we're going to do it, two things have to, have to um, obtain. Uh, one is we have to stay there for a long, long time, not just 10 years or 20, a generation or two, which is what uh, uh, colonial government did. And the other thing is um, it, it needs to be sufficiently in our interest to do it because the costs are high. Uh, it takes a lot of treasure and sometimes blood uh, to sustain a, an intervention. And the problem with doing it in Iraq and Afghanistan was that it wasn't entirely clear to us. I mean, it'd be a good thing to, to, to help um, Iraqis and, and Afghans develop uh, a more liberal, uh, law-based, political system in which to, in which to dwell. Um, but the question is, how much should we pay to do that? Um, so I, I do think that, that we, it needs to be clear to us, if we're going to um, be involved in that kind of um, foreign intervention, it needs to be clear to us that there's sufficient national interest in our so doing. And in the case of Ukraine... Uh, because that's rather closer to home than mm. Iraq and Afghanistan, the national interest is rather clearer. Uh, we do have an interest in persuading President Putin this is not the kind of thing that, that, that uh, um, is acceptable and he should not try it on the Baltic states or on NATO. Yeah, and it, it does feel like uh, a sort of knee-jerk anti-war sentiment that you know perhaps characterised people around Jeremy Corbyn and stuff does seem to be fading away. I just wonder how optimistic you feel about the future of um, your kind of idea, your, what you call the truth versus um, yes. the anti-colonialist narrative. Yes. Uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, there's a lot of ground to be made up. But I, I guess a number of things make me hopeful. First of all, I would say this, wouldn't I? Readers will have to judge for themselves. Um it's clear to me that the, 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 the radical extreme anti-colonial position 
is not plausible. Mm. It does not stand up before the facts. Um, uh, as I, I say polemically, these emperors have not many clothes on. And as soon as you stop listening to the noise and the shouting and the aggression and look at what they're saying and analyse it, it becomes manifestly clear, which I think is partly one reason why they shout and scream so much in the hope that you won't actually look. Um, can, I, can I tell an anecdote? Mm, sure. <laughs> so just to illustrate the point. Uh, back in 2016, I took part in a debate on um, in, in the Oxford Union uh, on whether the road statue should fall or not. Mm. And I was, of course, opposing its falling. Um, and I noticed uh, whenever a proponent of the motion that road should fall spoke, uh, there was an eruption of shouting and cheering and clapping and whistling. And if you listened, you would think, and this happened several times, you would think that 90% of people in the chamber wanted roads to fall. But then I got bored with listening and I started to watch. I noticed that most people in the chamber, when, when a minority were shouting and screaming, were doing nothing. They were watching. Um, so so th there's an illusion of dominance here created by aggression and noise, um, facilitated by the, um, the uncertainty um, and conflict aversion of a majority of people. Um, so so I, I think, I think um, the, the fact that the, um, if you like, the, the, the anti-colonialist, the extreme anti-colonialist minority uh, uh, don't really have an intellectual leg to stand on, plus the fact that um, there is out there a large number of people who want to be informed and are sceptical of the anti-colonialist position uh, does make me, uh, and the fact, in the end, my book got published, <laughs> and it's selling extremely well, and there are others like it. Um, and, and in the last three years, I've seen the forces of anti-woke resistance begin to organise themselves. Uh, I think in the long term, we'll win this, but we need to keep at it. I think that's a perfect note on which to end. And I'm sure all listeners to the CapEx podcast are happy to join you in, uh, in the anti-work resistance. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity, Alice. Thank I enjoyed you. it.